0: PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Pursuing your future doesn't end at 40. In fact, it may mark the beginning of knowing who you are, what you're capable of, and what you really want. But knowing what's next and how to get there can be a challenge, especially when old narratives play on repeat. Liberty Road is here to share stories so that you can consider your possibilities, pursue your purpose, and move into your future with intention. I'm your host, Netta Jones, and we're here to listen, learn, and liberate dreams one episode at a time. Well, hello, Liberty listeners. Welcome to another episode of Liberty Road. Today, you guys get to hear from Sharon Brown of Lot 99. Sharon and I met years and years ago when she was kind of on the front end, if I'm correct, of launching this brand. And man, has she made a splash since. Let's get behind what is Lot 99 and hear from the woman herself. Sharon, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you so much
2: for having me, Netta. It's really great to be here. Oh, it's a pleasure.
0: It's nice to see you on the other side. I've been wanting to get you for some time. So first, for our listeners who don't know, what is Lot 99?
2: So Lot 99 is a clothing brand, and the concept is unisex. So it's a combination of masculine, feminine fashion, and it's uh, classic fashion. So it's timeless. And We upcycle fabrics for sustainability and for cost and to keep it um, fresh. So not um, each store's collection will be the same. So it's a limited run
0: item. Oh, wow. So if I see lot 99 in a store in Santa Barbara, it's not necessarily the same as a store in L.A.? Exactly. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So it's small batch production. Um,
2: We use um, local sewers, everything's made here in LA. And so, you know, sometimes I'll make like 60 or 70 skirts, but I do it in maybe 10 different fabrics. And so usually when that's gone, it's gone.
0: Give us a little bit more behind upcycled fabric. So what does that mean? Does that mean a fabric was literally recycled, taken down to its threads? Or does that mean it's yards of fabric rather that haven't been used or were it made in small quantities.
2: Right. Well right now so there are jobbers in downtown LA who who go to auction and they buy fabrics and then they resell them. So I walk around and I go into these big warehouses and I drag my wagon and uh, I buy leftovers. It could be mother denim. It could be an Italian denim brand or uh, Italian men's shirting fabrics. I have a tendency to like Italian and Japanese fabrics. I might find 14 yards. I might find 1400 yards of something, but it's from other bigger brands. And so when they buy, they buy bulk and they sell it off at the end of the season.
0: And what is a jobber for those of us who don't know?
2: They're people who
0: have like these little businesses, they specialize
2: in um off-market goods. Okay. Like if you ever go to the flower market, you know how yeah. they do the auctions yeah. with the flowers? Yeah. It's like that they they do the same thing and sometimes the bigger brands will drive around with vans and they'll throw open the vans. It almost looks like black market but it's it's not and they'll you know jump into the back of the van and they'll forage through and see what they like and pull out because a lot of it's tactile so you want to feel it and know the
0: texture and and what you're dealing with. And how did you, and how would one, go about finding these warehouses of all these goods if they want to make small batch whatever? Is it a secret? Yeah, that's a mystery. (laughs) Yeah. It actually must be a mystery because I feel like you can't just be open to everybody. It would be chaos, right? So there's got to be a way of qualifying who gets to come in and take advantage of these products.
2: You know, not really. Like all down downtown, they throw up in these garage doors and it's a matter of going through and finding it. I mean, sometimes I'm climbing up on big pallets. There's one building, it's like four stories. And when I go in there, it's, you go into the bowels of history of fashion. and fashion. And there are people in there who go through with you. You know, you'll kind of have like a loose appointment and go through and, uh-huh. you know, you'll pick the one on the bottom and then four people will have to come pull it out of the pile. And, and it's funny because when I was a kid, my mother used to take me to a house. I grew up in Southern New Jersey and she would take me to this house house. And it was just filled to the rafters with fabric. And I would sit there and I'd be like, oh, this is a mess. I can't believe that they, you know, how unorganized (laughs) this is. I would think in my head, you know, like what chaos. And now here I am doing exactly the same thing. All these years
0: later. (laughs) So without giving up Kind of your resources, because I do understand that that's part of what makes your brand what it is, is that you're identifying these fabrics that are really special. If somebody's listening to this, they want to start a handbag company and they want to use leathers. Where do they go? Is there a number to call in Los Angeles? Where does one start? There is a directory at the LA Mart twice a year, vendors
2: with goods to sell wholesale goods will set up a show there and they bring samples of all their fabrics and what they have, their mm-hmm. trims, threads, buttons, and you go through and, you know, you talk to these people. It's like this schmata salesman. And they, <laughs> <laughs> and they, they bring their wares there. And once you find who you like to work with, you kind of keep going back. Like, A lot of these buildings in downtown LA where I go, they look like there's nothing happening on the inside. You might think that the building's been abandoned from the outside, but then you open it up and there's this beehive of activity going on in there. And I would think, wow, LA is just like this desolate, empty, vacuous, and you'd pull into a parking lot
0: and then you're like, wait a minute. And there's a whole factory in there. It's amazing. And it's amazing to me how... It's one of those industries, and I know this because I used to live in New York and actually lived in the garment district for a while in my 20s, or in my actually late teens, but it's amazing how antiquated it is. And I say that in kind of a beautiful way. There's something about it where, as you said, it's tactile. You still have to touch and feel and see things. You're negotiating with people. I remember seeing men on any given day when I lived in the garment district, rolling racks of clothing out onto 7th Avenue and meeting with people with a calculator in their hands and then (laughs) writing an invoice. And those things haven't changed, right? No, no, it's still like that. It's really this very interesting business, which to some degree in this age of technology, there's something kind of beautiful about it, like the exchange, the humanity of it. Um, you can really literally and figuratively get your hands around it, right? Yes, yes. Do you love that part of the business? I absolutely love it. Yeah. I love engaging with the people and
2: the the craft and uh, the problem solving. Uh, you know, you think it's it's easy because it's been happening for centuries, people yeah. making things. But it's not like each time you do something, you know, it's like, oh, I want that seam a quarter inch from there, you know, on the collar. Don't sew it so far in the middle because it makes it look cheap if you sew it at the side or don't sew it at all because then it's a dress shirt, a casual shirt. Each stitch has a meaning. That's very cool. And and you don't even realize it until you're in it. Sure. I'm learning every day what I like and what I don't like. Let's get into that. First of all, what is behind the name Lot 99? So my daughter, Charlotte, was born in 99. Got it. My original muse and model. So my last name's Brown. So her grandfather's names are Charles. And so I always wanted a boy. <laughs> <laughs> Thought she was going to be but a boy. We love you, and Charlotte. So I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> we love her more than I'd ever love a boy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, Charlie Brown was the idea. And her gr- her one grandfather even played hockey with Charles Schultz. Oh, how and so funny. it really was like, oh, yes, it solidified having her name be Charlie Brown. And so she didn't like Charlie for a long time. And then later in life, she decided to call herself Charlie. But I had already branded her as
0: Lottie <laughs> 99. Oh, that's sweet. And I love that she is actually, she still models for you quite a bit, right? She does when I can get her.
2: She's so busy every day. She's with Nike, Lululemon, you know, it's all these different brands have her all the time. And, you know, she can thank me for that one day.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's sweet to see um, on Instagram, you can see the two of you together and man, there's no denying that you are mother and daughter. It's actually very <laughs> oh, sweet. Thanks. So, thank you. Thanks. Go back to your roots a little bit. What did you do before you launched Lot 99? I grew up in New Jersey. I moved to Philadelphia. I
2: went to art school in Fort Lauderdale for a brief period and I studied fashion illustration and photography and advertising. So, I moved to Philadelphia and um, got picked up on the street to be a model. So I ran with that and did that for several years. And I always wanted to be a fashion designer. I was super persnickety about what I would wear. And in high school, I was wearing my $5 nightgown with my hiking boots and, you know, my old army belt that I would find. And there was no place really to shop in New Jersey. So you just kind of went with whatever you could Right, and tried to be creative, but my mom made all my clothes as a kid, also. So I think that really influenced me. She was a home sewer, and would make Christmas stockings. And my parents had a construction business, and so I've always seen them work really hard, and uh, you know they worked together for a long time. Mm-hmm. And it was for the good of the whole. And so then I got into film production when I moved to Los Angeles and I became um, a costume designer and an art director for TV commercials. And Nancy Allen, who you know quite well, I was her assistant and I worked for her husband. He was a director And they launched me off into this crazy career that I had for uh, about 15 years before I started doing this. I didn't
0: realize that was your connection with Nancy. That's
2: awesome. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So I stopped when I had Charlotte. Her father was from Vancouver. So I gave an old college try, moved to Vancouver, raised her there, had a lot of fun. And then I got back into modeling and TV commercials. And so I did that while I was raising her. And then when we um, parted ways, Charlie wanted to exercise her dual citizenship. And she said, um, Mom, you should move to L.A. That's where all the good fabrics are. And um, then she came here to do her senior year in high school. So that was five, six years ago. Wow. And we moved down right before all the, (laughs) all the crazy, all the natural disasters started happening. But um, luckily I got a foothold here before that. So I've managed to keep the business stable and, you know, keep riding the ship.
0: Yeah. Well, and you have, I mean, that's about when I met you when you had moved back down. So I didn't realize that you were kind of new into town. I mean, it was your second time living here. But man, you have been through it. Right, right. Now I understand. It's okay. So you come back to LA, you're climbing mounds of fabrics, you're seeing all of this stuff, you're finally exercising this thing that you've been wanting to do, which is to pursue being a fashion designer. You- I assume do what you just told us to do or advised us to do, which is you called the Mart and you sort of, you know, got some information about how you could access some of this stuff. What was your training though? Because you had talked about your education being in illustration and advertising. That's very different than, than actually designing.
2: So along the way, I would take courses in pattern making. So I went to um, the Philadelphia College of Textiles and Design. You know, I went to FIT. I took a class there. You know, it was a class here, a class there. And, you know, I went to UCLA. I went to Emily Carr. So, you know, I'm always learning. And as far as pattern making goes, there are people out there who are better at it than I am. And so I give them the vision and I give them what tools I have in my wheelhouse and then they use theirs to make it better.
0: So basically you're coming as the creative direction and you're utilizing you're, you're finding what whatever your gap was, you're finding people who can fill that gap to bring your vision to life. That's a great way to say that. Yes. I say it like that because I want our listener to see that whether it's fashion design or something else, you know, if you're baking a cake or you're starting an accounting firm or whatever, it's the same thing bring what you have to the table and find somebody that fills the gap. And every time we talk to a successful person, they say that over and over and over again, whatever they did really well. And they found other people to sort of scaffold that vision. And it sounds like here again, you're saying the same thing. It's
2: true. And at first I tried to do it all myself because I thought that that's what it took, but coming from film production Everyone comes together and works for the good of the whole. And so you you know you have the costumer, you have the art director, you have the director of photography, and the producer and the director take all these people and put them together. You know the lighting, the sound, and they they pick the cream of the crop and the people who work well together, and that becomes the team. And so once I finally applied that to my own business. It was like my aha moment right. and everything's just gone so much smoother. I'm much happier and <laughs> much more in control by letting that go with the control.
0: I like the way you've come at entrepreneurship because I think a lot of us come at it thinking it's a solo project and it takes us a while to learn that we need all of these people to work for the good of the whole. And what you did is you basically had that experience. You knew what that was like. You, you s- used the same exact phrase when you talked about your parents working together. So you kind of came into that knowing that it takes all of these people, it takes all of these cogs to sort of make this machine go. And so it seems like you had kind of a leg up bringing that experience into this solo entrepreneurial endeavor would you say that's the case i think so and in the beginning
2: charlie was quite involved and then she went and worked for someone else she went back to canada for for a bit and when she came back you know she really realized what a team looked like mm. and that made our working relationship a lot better. And she's also launched off into her own. Charlie beads has her jewelry business that's killing it. And she's just assembled her own team. So now, you know, if anyone's watching who um,
0: needs a gig, I have,
2: a, I have an opening. <laughs>
0: <Okay>. <laughs> Actually, you you say that jokingly, but you you'll be surprised and what is that gig actually just to be clear what that role was that she had
2: she was my founding board i would say well what do you think of you know this and most of the time her answer i would listen but then i would still do what i wanted to do anyway. yeah. and i think that that's hard and so we are doing a collaboration right now but what i need right now is someone to do all the things I don't have time to do. I was going to say an assistant. Yeah. I need an accountant. Mm -hmm. I need just someone to run around and help. I would love to find someone that I could trust to go out and say, well, you know, I need this trim,
0: but it's such a visual thing. It's so subjective. It's almost like somebody has to work alongside you to really get your vision or you have to find somebody that you trust their vision, you trust right. their taste. And that's that's tough. That's I'm glad really you're tough. saying all of this because again, I think the listener can see what this solo endeavor looks like, even though you have pattern makers and all these other people, those are contracted people, I assume, right. they're not full-time employees. so they can sort of see how you piece this together, how you need help in all these different areas, like you said, accounting, an assistant, somebody that can run out and get trims and other fabrics that you might need, but it's like you're cobbling it together as you go. Right. And what's so beautiful about you sharing that reality is that for those who are in the middle of it, just like you, they're like feeling validated, okay, if Sharon said that this is how it's all working for her, then it's okay that it's all working for me like this as well. And conversely, for those who are starting, they understand that it's not a smooth path. It's not not a smooth road, Liberty Road. It's the reason that we call it that. And that doesn't mean that they're not on the right track.
2: Right. I mean, so in the six, seven years I've been doing this, I originally started out making loungewear because I couldn't find pajamas that I felt were Mm -hmm. comfortable. And, and the fabrics that they were using were wrinkle resistant, and that has off gassing and it has chemicals in it that's bad for your skin. And so someone gifted me a pair of my favorite pair of pajamas that I've had for 20 years were these Brooks brothers, men's pajamas. And so Mm -hmm. a friend gifted me another pair because mine were absolutely threadbare. And I literally would put them on and have to take them off because I couldn't stand the feel of them. And I was like, what Mm -hmm. is this? I was on a quest for pajamas other than when Barney's was around, I couldn't really find Mm -hmm. anything. And Uh, You know, even there was a bit too much. You know, there wasn't the classic English pajamas was what I was looking for. So I thought, okay, I'm going to take this on. I'm going to do this. And then um, I got a huge order, 175 pairs of pajamas, silk and cotton, like literally out of the gate. Okay, so there are shows you can go to. They're costly, but that's how people find you.
0: So I did a show. And these are trade shows. This is not a fashion show. They're trade shows. They're
2: trade shows. Yes. And so if anybody wants to know about them, I can, you know, hobble some information together. So one of the best stores in California orders from me. Literally, I'm getting ready to deliver them. The floods and the fires started. It was such a tragedy that I couldn't ask for them to take the order. So I started going to these markets and selling them at the markets. And, you know, what I didn't think about was that they had insurance that would have covered their losses and, Mm. you know, probably mine. So I just thought I was doing, you know, the the humane thing. The right thing. Yeah. Right. And so I started going to the markets and selling there and people started finding me and I got this little following. And so, uh, you know, I was like, oh, this is great. And then I did a pop-up at um, Fred Siegel and they have fires broke out on the 405. And I was like, <laughs> okay. I'm cursed.
0: <laughs> so I was like, <laughs> That's so hard to get over when you're starting. It's like, how many more whammies can I
2: take? So I write the ship again and, you know, I go to more markets. And originally I was doing silk and silk is $20 a yard wholesale. So if someone yeah. was to go into a store and buy the silk that I'm buying, they'd be paying like almost $40 a yard for it. As you do these markets, you have a lot of L&D. And What's L&D? Loss and damage. Yes. So, you know, then you're having to mark it down and you're like, oh, and then, you know, a button eventually will fall off. And it's like carrying around your closet with you. Sure. Then the pandemic happened. Wow. Sharon. (laughs) My fabric was locked in um, my cutters. So I have a cutter and then I have sewers and then I have, you know, my suppliers. My fabric was locked in my cutters for seven months. And that was when I was still making loungewear. And um, I had all these great like checks and plaids and really cute, fun, summery things. Well, you know how long the pandemic went on. Yeah. At the end of it, I went there and he'd actually passed away. So they were wheeling my fabric out coincidentally to go sell it when I showed up there and I talked the new cutter into just making skirts for me
0: because those were faster to make because Because they were less
2: labor. Okay. Faster to make. Yes. All of the, it was easier. And my pajamas have 26 pieces and my skirts have a front and a back and two pockets. So it's like, right. I was like, I need to get out of this. You know, you've got baby in a corner here and I have to come out swinging. And literally, I did. Someone saw them and invited me to a pop-up in Summerland. It was Folly Home. And she um, relaunched my career. A gal from Wendy Foster came in, the buyer, Laura. And she was like, oh, I love this. Come to Wendy Foster. And now they're one of my biggest stores. And ironically, Wendy Foster was where I started in the first place when they became the staging ground. For
0: the fires and the floods. I don't know if you remember, I DM'd you. I was at Wendy Foster in Santa Barbara in Montecito. And I was like, this looks like Sharon. Could it be? And I looked and sure enough, I saw the lot 99 and I DM'd you. And I was like, I just saw one of your skirts on Wendy Foster. But I have to just pause here for a second because long before we heard pivot, pivot, pivot during COVID, you were pivoting, pivoting, pivoting. It's everything from, okay, the company, the retail store that had their own tragedy and damages, you decide that um, you're not gonna pursue them for payment. So you take those units and you sell them at market. So all of a sudden you have an experience from being a wholesaler who's selling to a retailer to a direct to consumer brand. Right. it's not just that you're pivoting some slight thing within your business, like you're changing the way you do business. The flip side of that or the the bright side of that, is that all of a sudden you see all of these consumers who are engaged um, and want to see more of your brand and who know your brand firsthand. What that does is that puts pressure on the retailer because you've built a following to want to bring your clothes into their establishment. Tragic as it was, um, and I'm not saying there weren't damages and losses, but you really created an opportunity out of something that some people would have just said, I'm done, hang it up. Then during the pandemic with your cutter, again, that's brilliant to think about not how do we quickly get these pajamas out into the market, but. What is the thing that's standing in the way between me and getting them to market quickly and costing me even less? Okay, well, if I utilize less hours and times, both of my cutter, and I'm assuming of the sewer too, because it's more simple to sew, right. then I can get this to market more quickly. So, I mean, this this epitomizes entrepreneurship. Like somebody who understands along the way, here's here's the vision. I want to be a fashion designer. Here's where I am. And there are a series of issues and problems between where I am and the vision. And it's not trying to get to the vision without any hiccups. There are guaranteed hiccups. It's how you navigate those hiccups. And I think you've just beautifully shared with us. What people can expect, but also the resilience that is required and the creative thinking that's required. So, thank you so much for going through those highs and lows. I hope it wasn't uh, traumatic. <laughs> to we <laughs> <relive> them, PTSD. <laughs> yes. No, I can imagine that's really tough. But but then to find yourself in a situation where, again, you've come full circle. And to have expanded, you may have right. stayed in pajamas for right. a lot longer.
2: Well, I mean, and there were a couple things that happened, too, was during the pandemic, people who could access their business saw a need for pajamas and sweatpants. And so all of a sudden, the market was also saturated. So you have to keep looking at what other people are doing. Yeah. And so it was like, okay, they're doing it better and less expensive or they're bringing it from India and I can't really compete with that. And so, you know, it was, it's, it's like undulating constantly of like, well, if someone else is doing it, maybe I need to, you know, steer away from that a little bit because they're doing it as well or better. People started saying, you should be wearing your clothes. Why aren't you wearing your clothes? And I thought, well, you know, I make pajamas and I was making pajamas that you could wear out and you right. could greet the mailman and you felt confident in and you could go to the market or drop the kids off at school. And so that was the the original idea. And I was like, well, I'm in downtown LA and I'm stepping over things that, you know, we will leave yeah. unnamed. So I just thought, okay, what do I want to be wearing? What do I want? And so then I slowed down again. I was like, all right, I'm filling this void over here. And I'm working with everything that I had. And now I'm being more like true to me and what mm-hmm. I want to put on in the morning. And so, you know, like today I have on my Canadian tuxedo, you know, I have on my full denim and I wanted to make my own wide leg jeans that fit me. So I made my own jeans. I made my own shirt and And I'm like, okay, this is who I am. And this morning when I got out of my car, this woman was like, oh my gosh, I love your outfit. And like I normally would say, oh, I make this. And I was like, no, I'm just gonna, you know, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I know who made it. Thank you. (laughs) But it felt so good, you know, on my way to come here and talk to you too. Even getting dressed for this interview, was like, this is really who I am. Yeah,
0: It keeps me true to who I am. Yeah. Since you and I met, we've pivoted to to really focus the podcast and really the platform on women, this 40, 50, 60-year-old stage of life, because I don't feel like a lot of people are. Outside of the conversations around menopause and kind of fine lines and wrinkles, there's lots of conversation going on about that. But it dawns on me that as you are wearing the clothes that you're making for you, you're making them for others of us who are in this stage of life who don't want to be date stamped. Right. We're looking for new ways to experiment with who we are and to grow into who we are. And I think for a long time the conversation was around don't dress too young, like don't wear you know low-rise jeans and bare midriff Okay. Well, thanks. But is that it? Is that the only, you know, advice I have going into right. whatever? There's so many ways I think that we can express who we are. And that must be a part of what's going on with you, that more and more people are seeing you look amazing and up to date without being trendy, right? And i right. wondering like, oh, how do I achieve that? Uh, whether it's lot 99 or anything, how do I put, things together. Are you finding that as people see you wearing your clothes, or if you're doing a pop-up and they see you as the designer, that they're sort of like, oh, okay, this is made for me. This is not made just for, for example, when we see Charlie, your daughter in Instagram, it's not just for her. I love seeing you wearing the clothes too. Right. And so that's what we're working on right now is turning around
2: and, um, I'm going to be in more of the future. Awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm just making some adjustments. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I hear you. 2023 adjustments. I hear you. <laughs> so
2: I've come out swinging this year. I've been going to yoga three times Good a week, you. you know, getting acupuncture. And, oh my gosh, can I tell you, I, <laughs> acupuncture in my face. Yeah. And it really works at tightening and brightening. It's
0: amazing amazing. And relaxing too. i got relaxing. to believe just having that regular ritual of just slowing down must help. It's slowing
2: down, but it actually stimulates your whole sure. um, system. So it's fantastic. And it's funny, Charlie and I have, since we've been together in um, Instagram, she's a model. Yeah. And her agency started submitting us for things. And so now I'm signed with her agency. Oh my gosh, and so I love it. It's the second
0: coming of uh, Sharon Brown. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I
0: 2. love 0. it. You've entered into a multi hyphenate status being model and fashion designer.
2: Well, and you know, you're talking about as we mature, I mean, we are the demographic that we need to be marketing too. And so yeah. you know you're right in saying that that like there's this shift., yeah. and I see it in advertising all the time. and you know, t- tomorrow I'm doing a skincare ad. It's really been fun, really, really fun. and it and it also like makes you just work a little bit harder and a little bit smarter. When you're your own boss, you can say, Oh, well, I'll do that tomorrow. Well, I'll do it the next day. You know, you can let it languish. You don't have to address everything immediately. But when you start to pick up the pace and other people get involved and want you for other things, then you have to be more. Uh, calendar focused and, sure. and driven, you know, sure. and you start to really reel it back in yeah. to your focus. Whereas
0: I've been like, oh, well, you know, oh, what's over the what's shiny thing <laughs> over there? Oh, the shiny thing <laughs> syndrome. Yes. It's that saying of if you want something done, find a busy person, you know, they've, they've just <laughs> got to incorporate right. it into their life. That's cool. I'm excited to see more of, of you on the pages of <laughs> of different things because I think that, to your earlier point, Like more and more advertisers are looking for that. They're yeah. slowly but surely, yeah. I, I'm crossing my fingers, getting the message that we are the demographic that they need to pay attention to, not right. just from a practical point of view as we're the deep pockets in America, but also I think there's a missing... Um, opportunity to know what we need. And the percentage of the population that we represent is worthy of satisfying those needs in products and services, in whatever. So it's good to hear that that you are for hire as a model with some of those brands. (laughs) You've been talking about this relationship with you and Charlie. I want to sort of address it. What was that like working together and maybe any words of wisdom that you can share with our listener if they're going to work with a family member or a good friend
2: well i mean listening is important and and also boundaries obviously respect for one another and you know respect for the ideas and for i think one of the things that um, initially we we did it in our home And so, you know, you can work 24 seven if it's in your home. And so you need to know when to turn off and respect that that person has a life outside of, you know, you starting your business. (laughs) They do. Why? (laughs) Yeah,
0: that's a good one. You
2: know, they're not available all the time to, you know, run things by or try things on or whatever. So that's what I learned. And now um, I'm learning a lot from her on social media and marketing and how to trust a photographer to go out and, and have a vision, you know, because before I was photographing everything, photographing her and it's it's too much, you know, there, there are other people who have better visions than I do. Sometimes,
0: (laughs) Yeah, sometimes. Not always, but sometimes. And, And that goes back to what we were talking about earlier is finding those gaps and finding people that can do things better. But I think we view a gap as a thing we don't know how to do or can't do. Sometimes a gap is just, we're okay at it. We could even be pretty good at it, but we shouldn't be doing it because it takes us from being the CEO or the designer or the director or the head of whatever that vision is that we're creating. We are, after all as an entrepreneur, we are driving that vision. And if somebody isn't nurturing the vision constantly, then we're doing a disservice to to the business. I think it's good to think about gaps as both things we can't do and things we ought not to do. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah. Like if I brought in a
2: stylist, she would have a whole different vision as to what I was creating, you know, she can add to it and sure. layer it in a way that, you know, when I see Nancy Allen wearing my things, I'm like, Oh, that's amazing. So I'm I'm constantly watching other people and how they're pulling it together as well.
0: That's really cool. For our listeners, Nancy was a costume designer for years and is a, an amazing artist. And we'll do a link in in the show notes just so people know who this Nancy is that we're talking about. But I want to ask you really quickly, you talked about growing up with both your parents being entrepreneurial, having a construction company, your mom being a sewer. So seeing all that, seeing that sort of um, entrepreneurial spirit, did you think this is my path? I I want to be... Uh, My own boss? Was that ever a driver for you? Well, it's all I ever saw. I never
2: saw them work for anyone else really. When I was a a child, they would deliver newspapers before they would do these other jobs. So it it was constant. Like my father would get up at two o'clock in the morning, deliver newspapers, then go to work in Philadelphia. At a construction job and then come home and then he had 20 hound dogs that he would go hunting with. Wow. Then my sister had her own business and my brother had his own business. So it's kind of all I ever knew. And then once I fell into the film business, I was like, oh, I found my people like this is you, know, you. You come together for the good of the whole. It was just this family. And that's the one thing that I miss about working for myself Mm. is that, um, you know, my family are these contractors in these other buildings that are working so hard all day long. I mean, they come in at seven and they leave at seven. Wow. I have never seen such a strong work ethic in my life. Mm. It's it's amazing, and they're lovely, and my heart just like explodes with with how passionate they are about doing a good job. But I I only work with sample makers, and so it, sometimes if my price point is higher, it's because the finishing is better and the the care that goes into it. It's not like I'm sewing a thousand; I'm making sure. ten.
0: Sure. you know, I'm making one. I'm making fifty. you know, and it's the not- people that you're paying are paid fairly, too. That's right. So I have to ask before we move to our fast five, what have you learned about yourself in this process of launching lot ninety nine that maybe you didn't know before? Like how resilient I yeah. am, I'd say. and how I guess tenacious, yeah. Two words that I think, any successful entrepreneur would say are necessary elements of riding that wave of the long and winding road. Um, Thank you for that. Thank you for the story. Thank you for all of the resources. My goodness, you've just given them a wealth of information. So thanks for that, Sharon. But you're not off the hook yet. What's a hack, maybe aside from the acupuncture that you're doing, but something that you're doing, it could even be a clothing hack, since you're a fashion designer, that you think our listeners that are over 40 should know? A clothing
2: hack. One of the things I'm doing right now is color blocking. And so I'm making shirts and pants that match, they the same color. You know, it's elongating, it's slimming. It's classic and it's timeless. That's my hack. Is if you, you know you want to look taller and thinner, go with all one color. Yeah.
0: <laughs> and then add interest with accessories, right? That's it. Exactly. That's an easy one. Exactly. You have an awesome turquoise belt that you wear in some of your I've seen it in some oh, of your interests. Are yes. you wearing it? Yes. Oh, this I love belt. that oh, belt. Oh, I'm
2: so glad you mentioned that. So, I'm it. doing a collaboration with Madalena Bierze, who's a jewelry designer and she's a researcher. She sports the dolphins and she takes the brass and does like an ocean treatment. And I make the leather. It's not turquoise. No, it's a treatment that she does
0: with like salt and. So, it's like um, patinaed brass yes, essentially. yes. Wow. That's amazing! Yeah. yeah, I love that. Got it. We got to get our hands on noted,
2: that. Noted, <laughs> noted. I know someone. You know someone.
0: <laughs> what are you reading these days? Anything that you'd like to pass along to our listeners? <laughs> well, funnily enough, my
2: daughter gave me um, a book by a Canadian author, Gabor Mate. Is that mm. How you say his name? Yeah. And it's called "The Myth of Normal." Sounds like something we should all be reading. <laughs> are you enjoying it? I am. Okay, good. She bought one for herself. He's a physician and he talks about just that we shouldn't put ourselves in these boxes and, and you
0: know, who's to say what's normal. That sounds like a good read for us. And a, And a piece of advice that you would give a woman who is in this demographic, in this stage of life that we're talking to, what's something that you would say to her about launching her own venture?
2: I'd want to make sure that you know the reason that you're doing it.
0: You know, are you doing it
2: for profit or are you doing it for yourself? And um, if it's for profit, see what other people are doing and
0: find your your own niche, find what speaks to you. Yeah, 100%. I think that goes back to knowing what your why is. And it's perfectly fine if that why is for financial reasons. But I think there usually needs to be something a little bit more soulful behind that why to make that financial connection connect to other people. What is it that is so special about this that I'm going to exchange money for it? You know, I usually ask this question and I say, what would you say to the 20-year-old Sharon about midlife? But you've got Charlie who is listening and paying attention. What do you want her to know about entering midlife? Cuz I think you and I had this narrative passed down that somehow we would be winding down by this time and the only thing we would want is grandchildren. And it's just so different. What do you want her to know?
2: That yeah, it's not over till it's over. Yeah. And don't be fearful
0: yeah every
2: day is is a new day it's it's just an adventure and it is a road mm-hmm. and there are lots of of turns and and different places to go so be true to yourself and and if stability is what you're looking for and you want to settle in one place then let that be your place of growth but if you want to you know continue journeying through every crevasse go for it yeah when I was in my 20s I had a cutting table and I was ready to do this then and I was fearful of cutting the fabric for making a mistake and so I let that stop me a long time ago and it haunted me when she was getting ready to graduate I thought okay who am I after Charlie who am I yeah and, mm. and I didn't want to turtle and do it four years after she left. So I started doing it while she was there so that I wasn't left spinning my wheels, trying to find myself. Yeah. And I mean, I think I'm going to change again. Very soon, with my direction. Yeah. You know, I'm just going to keep all the balls in the air until one hits me in the head and knocks me out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and there's the freedom to do that. I say that, and I realize every time I say something like that, that we're coming from a place of privilege, that not everybody yes. has those yes. opportunities. So when you're in that place, I think you really have to think about the opportunities that you have, how to take advantage of them. It feels like a responsibility. And then how do you bring other people along for that journey? Because not everybody has the opportunity that you have, doesn't have the open door that you have, doesn't have access that you have, doesn't have financial means that you have. So I think we owe it to not just ourselves, but to the other people we bring along the way.
2: I mean, my financial Situation was I was self-made all along the way. I did it myself.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, that being said, had some tragedy mm-hmm. befell me, my parents would have been there to pick me up in some mm-hmm. way, you know, and now my mom has passed and, and that's definitely been another, uh, you know, pause. Mm-hmm. It's also been a growth period for me where I'm you know looking at okay this is finite so you know where exactly do i want to be what exactly do i want to be focusing on uh, i'm just grateful for all the opportunities that i have you know i have been blessed with things that allow me to keep going to the next level sure. and and it's it's most of the time been fun.
0: Most of the time. <laughs> most of the time. Well, it wouldn't be life if it was always the case, right? Life isn't yeah. isn't that way. And of course, I have to ask you, what has launching Lot 99 done to liberate you? What has this journey done to liberate you, Sharon? It's given me confidence. It's given me an
2: entree into... Places that I wouldn't have necessarily felt comfortable in hmm. where I was feeling a bit, maybe like a fraud. Sometimes I still feel that way, sure. but um, it's given me
0: a sense of self-worth. Yeah. I, I think that when we think about liberating that dream, whatever it is, we often find that it is not the end result it's not like you're sitting here saying i have a 25 million dollar fashion brand <laughs> hardly <laughs> no but but that's the point but yet you still feel liberated in this process and so i think that tells us a lot about the the importance of the process of the journey and being able to enter into whatever this endeavor might be for the listener, a nonprofit, a for-profit, a, a project, writing a book, whatever, uh, knowing that the journey is as much the value as the destination, if not more. And I would challenge that it's probably more. I think it's nice to hear. Um, it's validating to hear from people like you that in fact, that is the case, that we are liberated and we are more of ourselves because we've kind of taken on the challenge and and here we are on the other end. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. And I
2: mean, it's not a straight shot every day. It's, it's just something magical and new and, and possible. Yeah. You know, just the possibility. And originally I was like, Oh, I don't know. I, I just want to do this for myself. I don't really want to have, I'm not looking to make a million dollars. Well, a million dollars. <laughs> but I'm not looking to get rich. I'm not, you know, I want to do it for me. And then you start doing it and you're like, oh, well, maybe I could. Maybe yeah. I will.
0: Sharon, you have that was the slowest fast five we've ever done and worth every single <laughs> second. Thank you so much for that. Oh my gosh. And thank you for spending this time with me and with our listeners. I so appreciate it. Oh, you're so wonderful. I'm so so happy to be here. Thank you very much. Of course. And Liberty listeners, thank you for spending this hour with Sharon and with me. I know that you're going to find it to be um, a valuable resource. We will talk to you listeners next week. Bye for now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Liberty Road is broadcast on all platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, and more. If you like what you've heard, please follow, rate, and review Liberty Road on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It helps us to know if these episodes are inspiring and equipping your ventures. Liberty Road is produced by Netta Jones and Elizabeth Joy Windham, and music by Jordan Flower.